hello everyone. Um, welcome. Uh, I, I'm Karen, the director of the museum. It's so lovely to have you all here. Thank you for coming. Um, my job is mainly to shut up because I'm <laughs> not an artist, and the plan is to have. Uh, Helena, Tom and Claire do most of the talking. As I said, I'm just going to just hopefully keep the conversational ball um, uh, afloat. And I thought I also wouldn't... All of the biographies are in the programme that you have. What I think is perhaps a more useful way to kick off is I was going to ask each of the artists to just briefly present the project that they're going to be talking about specifically. But for goodness sake, the conversation can sort of bring in other projects as well. But just as a point of focus for us all, I think... Claire's going to talk about her project at Tate Modern, uh, Tom, his residency here, and Helena, uh, your residency at the Hornland. So, Claire, do you want to kick off? With a... I shall. That sounds like a good idea. Um, so, I, the, the reason I'm talking about uh, my role as lead artist for Tate Exchange is for a, for a couple of different reasons. Out of the... Uh, the long practice of working with museums, there were a lot of differences with being lead artists at the Tate Exchange, which are really helpful to talk about today, I think, because of the different kind of information, the different kind of invitation, and I think the scale of the artist's voice is potential. So Tate Exchange, brand new programme now in its third year, a very, very big step for an organisation like the Tate, a very positive step um, when... I was invited to work with the Tate Exchange. We'd been in dialogue for maybe about three years. So a very long, considered journey where I felt confident with my voice. I felt as if I had value. And interestingly enough, the object that the Tate Exchange carried round for about two years to explain this project was a cup and sauce that I made for this museum. So that was very good, highly relevant. Um, but as lead artist, you are not an artist in residence. It's a very different invitation. You are making a provocation for that space for one year. So you have to be very clear about what your thoughts are. And in this case, I wasn't working with an archive. I wasn't working with a collection. I was working with an institute and a brand new idea. So a very different invitation to me. And I had incredible support from across all the curatorial departments at the Tate and from the support, the support teams. And also, being able to witness the Tate Exchange growing was really important to me to understand they were getting to know themselves. And that, gave, that afforded me an opportunity to stretch my voice. So I grew as an artist. And so I think the main thing, it wasn't a residency it was about leading the voice for the year. And maybe, I don't know if you want me to talk about how I did that, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, should we come, should we come yeah, back to that? That's so that, the start. Is, yeah. is it, before we go, is there any question that somebody goes, I don't understand? What the, cool. Okay. Everybody pitch in. <laughs> Tom. Um, okay, I'll talk uh, briefly, I guess, about what I did while I was here. Um, so, as Nick was saying earlier, there was an open call. Um, which I applied for. I'd done a residency which was very different previously and I wasn't long out of a postgraduate study. Um, and I'd done a lot of things which were based around um, specific uh, objects or artefacts in collections. And the main key in for me was to try and flip that around and see what happens when you're surrounded by that rather than trying to pry it away. 
Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit. <laughs> Not to do with here. Uh, but, so I, I guess I, I, I came very open-minded, and it's quite difficult for me to think about um, doing something, as was mentioned before, without there being a fixed end result, because I'm very much a maker. Um, although I describe myself as having a research-based practice or have been described as having that, um, the, there's usually this idea of having this almost sacrificial endpoint, which enables the research to happen. <laughs> um, and then so sometimes you kind of like, and this, this is the thing. But then sometimes the thing's more exciting. Uh, it depends on what notion of success that might be. So here, coming into it, there was this, I, to be quite honest, it, it, was, it was quite interesting to hear the panel because I was just thinking like, yeah, there's no end result, but there's an, there's an end result. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it, it actually worked really well. It, it actually was really good for several reasons for me and my practice in terms of being able to slow down. So uh, I, I came in and just this idea of you can do anything was a bit bewildering. And for a while there was almost a kind of a doldrums thing after the initial touring and meeting and... Yeah, interacting with the volunteers, the staff, uh, visitors, uh, looking through the archives, going to the, uh, I can't remember what the name of the archive, London Metropolitan, London Metropolitan Archives as well, just sort of pouring through some stuff over there. Um, I eventually, as Alison said, hooked onto um, the handle collection upstairs and hanging around in there. It was a really nice place to go and work as well. Um, this idea of having a base, because previously it had been a staff room, people coming for a break and I was there. <laughs> on my laptop, hi, who are you? Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> Just ignore me. Um, and then, yeah, so sort of hanging around in there, looking at the uh, manuscripts and the music and trying to remember how to look at that kind of thing and then realising that I'm still very much more visual and uh, uh, sort of tactility-based and sort of going through all the stuff. And then similarly looking at the collection of the paintings, as you said, a lot of it is um, European painting which has been donated, unlike a lot of other collections. So there's this idea of patronage and so on. The, a lot of the stuff associated with that is the paintings of individuals who have the money to pay for the paintings to be made and uh, for the artists to do them, and then for the artists to then donate them, or the people who paid for them to donate them. Um, so there's a lot of people and the backgrounds I got really fascinated with, how people want to be presented against the background, and even more specifically to do with the skies. Um, which were a kind of a pre-romantic idea of what a sky probably looks like, but we haven't really looked at it yet. So a lot of it just kind of fills space, or it's used as a mood filler. So there's a couple of paintings where there's like a battle, military, uh, a naval battle at sea, which is a you know sort of a cloudy sky, um, and it's like playing dramatic music. And then there's another one I can't remember who it is upstairs, a guy with a large house. Um, <laughs> in a wig. <laughs> um, uh, it can be quite a lot. Yeah, exactly. Narrow it down. <laughs> but the clouds are amazing because they almost look like his hair. There's sort of like this this halo, and it's just like, is this what a cloud like? I don't know, but I've got a deadline cloud, cloud, cloud. Um, so I, I started talking about them being quite conspicuous because they didn't look naturalistic in the way that a lot of other things did. And then mixing the idea of this marbling technique on the end of the paper with this idea of the clouds. Um, I guess to sort of wind that up, there was a, the end result was making these marbles with the children initially from the Coram Institute next door. Coram Institute? It was the nursery, wasn't it? Was it the nursery. nursery? Yeah. It was. I kind of went in saying, can I work with some kids? And they went... <laughs> <laughs> Artists in museums. And, uh, and they went, yeah, sure. They're like 
18 months old, and I was like, yeah, I'm sure that'll be fine. <laughs> Turns out their hands are really small. Um, and there's a lot of this. My favourite thing in the whole residency was this idea of making marbles, about marbling with this polymer clay that you could then set straight. Does anyone remember FIMO? FIMO. Right, so, so that, but it takes quite a bit of doing to get it going. So I did a lot of this while the kids did a little bit of this. And they made some beautiful things. The best things that they made were the marbles that weren't marbles. They were conceptually marbles because they were made of the same material, but they were like snakes. <laughs> or they were like in their mouths. <laughs> and uh, I had this great conversation with Emma Middleton uh, about the, who was running the sort of educational uh, aspect of things, but she was saying, these aren't marbles. And I was going, these are definitely marbles. Um, but yeah, it, that was the end result, was trying to make a, the research all fed into making this physical object. And then the end result, which we talked about before, was playing marbles in the large meeting room upstairs with uh, a lecture given by Esther Leslie, who is fantastic uh, at talking about material matter, uh, that kind of thing, uh, and histories of and interactions with. And she gave a lovely talk about clouds, which she'd given previously. And a curator called Helen Kaplinsky was interviewing me about what I'd been doing there because I didn't like the idea of doing a lecture, so I got an interview, which was nice. And, uh, and then we got the best thing about that event I liked was that I thought we needed somebody to officiate. So we got the guy, did you remember meeting this guy? The, um, the guys from the British Marbles Board of Control. <laughs> the McCarthy Foxes. Uh, there's a couple who run this organisation and it's a thing and they do all the official championships and so on. And uh, they brought along uh, these little bits of uh, felt with the circles drawn on it that we were going to play on. Um, but we just used the whole room because it made a great noise. And Nick was getting some recordings of the noises. So, not as short as I was hoping, but um, as I said before, I'm slightly verbose, so sorry about that. Uh, that's my, my story. Oh, you see, now, Claire didn't have the fair amount of time, so I can't believe it. Don't worry, I'm going to grab it back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Helena. Okay, um, well, I've actually prepared just a little five-minute kind of yeah. overview of the project, and I just actually wanted to talk about the work a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm going to refer to my notes because I know we're quite short for time, so um, I'll just talk a little bit about the project. Um, so the project is called Fallen Birds that I did at the Horniman Museum and um, really this project aimed to address um, the kind of alarming decline in, in bird species globally um, and really when I went into the residency I had these questions of what songs would extinct and endangered bird singers, um, how could we hear their stories and what might their representations hide and reveal. Um, so during the residency, I really engaged with, um, well, I engaged in a series of durational writing encounters with extinct and endangered birds in the natural history collection. And these included the Huya, the Kakapo, the Passenger Pigeon, the Great Ark, and the Atlantic Puffin. Um, and this research really aimed to sort of experiment with um, poetic language to materialise what it might mean to encounter extinct and endangered birds in this way. Um, so as taxidermy mounts in a museum con context um, and also on display. Um, and I wanted to try and also, through this work, bring the museum spe specimens into contact with broader contexts of um, environmental change and species depletion. So during the residency, um, I did these kind of durational writing encounters with these birds, which often lasted about six hours, which were quite intense. Um, and then I also... Um, 
met with um, and did some research in the conservation department. I was really interested in how the conservation team uh, look at uh, the specimens and the kind of technologies and practices they have, you know, for kind of looking. Um, and I was shown a series of x-rays of the birds I've been working with. And these x-rays are really used by the conservation department to look for breakages, vulnerabilities, fragility and damage in the internal armature of, of the bird in order to repair, repair uh, and kind of conserve this taxidermy mount. So um, I was really kind of taken with this practice of looking and the kind of paradox of conserving this extinct specimen in this museum and kind of set off a whole host of, of questions and thoughts. Um, and also the images are really forensic. They have this forensic quality. Uh, they reveal these hid hidden wire structures which are kind of hidden on display, you know, when you see the kind of real-life representation of the bird um, in, in the museum. So I started to see these internal wire structures really as alternative inscriptions um, that gesture towards the hidden biographies <coughs> and narratives that are written actually into the bodies of the birds. So during the residency, um, I combined the fragments of poetic text from the writing sections with the x-rays, and I created four film-positive prints of the birds with poetic text. So there were these kind of images, and they're exhibited on light boxes. Um, so the text and the armature of the bird become visible. Um, and so now having kind of finished, so I, I created these, these four works, um, and now having finished the residency, uh, the dialogue with the museum really continues, and... Um, we're in conversation about how this research really kind of lands in the museum, uh, in what form and what might be best. So I'm, I'm kind of talking to various different members of the team. Um, and uh, it's also created new opportunities. So from this, um, I was invited to share the works as part of a group show and um, conference called Eco Futures. And I was also invited to uh, participate and, and have a commission with Gasworks. Um, as part of a, a kind of curatorial residency. So these new opportunities have really enabled me to kind of build on the work I did in the Hornemann Museum, uh, but also kind of to take it a step further, so to move beyond the encounter with these uh, taxidermy mounts and into, um, I guess, more kind of critical encounters uh, and cartographies, tracing cartographies around the birds um, and thinking about how the birds and the humans kind of connect over time um, and space and why these kind of connections matter, really. So I'm looking primarily now at the passenger pigeon, a bird that's endemic to North America, it's now extinct, um, that constantly migrated for food and shelter uh, within that range. Um, and I've created also from the residency a kind of performative presentation which really traces the passenger pigeon's migrations and movements, um, and uh, it also focuses on, focuses on the, the movements of First Nations peoples of Americas, uh, issues of biodiversity loss and environmental change. Um, so the plan is really to kind of think about how this may be shared and land back in the museum, but what's been really great about it is that uh, the residency has helped me to create four new works, including a performance, um, and I've got this kind of pool and this well of writing to kind of continue to, put, to propel my practice and to kind of delve into and, mm -hmm. and do kind of different things when it'll have different iterations of forms. Hmm. So, yeah, sorry if that was a bit long, but I just hmm. wanted to... Yeah. No, 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 and I think we'll cover... I wanted to kind of, in a sense, start by kind of going back to the beginning and asking all of you what was... I mean, obviously, the ArtQuest call-out is slightly different, Claire, from your relationship with Tate, but 
what was it about the particular institutions? What, was it a, an interest in going, I, I would like to work within a museum? Or is it, it's this museum that I want to work in for the, these specific reasons, or a combination of the two for, for the three of you in terms of... Because I think that motivation, that initial spark as to why, why this one, when it could be others? Or was it much more kind of um, opportunistic and it's like, wow, families come up, I'll give it one again. Claire, <laughs> <laughs> you go first, I'll leave time to think that one. <laughs> I'll answer that honestly, shall I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think honesty, honesty is the best policy in this, in this session. Well, well, it, well it's interesting because... Um, in terms of the, the Tates, then I'd been fortunate enough to show a work with them 10 years previously. And so unbeknown to me, I'm kind of uh, a friendly artist in terms that they knew a little bit about my practice. So the conversation, it was a long conversation that I had, it was, th- it was three years of a conversation before we got to a point where I said, OK, we'll take this to the trustees. So there's quite a lot of, so, so let me get to the point, which is that this space was so compelling. Um, I wouldn't have turned down the turbine hall, but this space was so compelling um, in terms of at this point they were framing it in this unknown new language of this is where art meets society. And the project that I did here was very much about me starting to move into societal questions through the participatory work that I've been doing for 15 years where that's been with museums. And in a way, museums are the conduit to the public since um, in the... 80s, it was deemed that no, no museums, museums should have open access. And so all of these things gave me for a long time the eluded idea that we were gaining access and creating democratic access. And in a way, the weight of the museum door, which I'm sure everybody knows here, is still very heavy for all kinds of different reasons. And so when you're presented with something which says, this is art meets society, you're like, I've been dying to get to this for ages. Let's do this. So that, in a way, gave me confidence and I think when you're working with the scale of the teams that you work with at the time, then I needed that confidence. I needed to know that that was my driver. And it was my driver. And I think one of the most significant things that I took from that was the... And Tanya Begir and I have talked about this in terms of the, the, the volume of your voice. The, how, how loud is your voice in that situation? If you're being mindful and you don't turn into a shouty person, how loud is your voice? And it felt that the processes allowed me to have voice, which was incredible. But by the time we got to the end of the year, because of the way that I approached the project, so my, the theme I was given was production. And, you know, I'd made about 80,000 objects that all disappeared by that point, so I thought, this is genius production. I mean... Um, so I was to make a provocation, which was the scene and the unseen. That took about a year and a half to get those five words. Um, but in terms of, I stayed around. Some lead artists have done the provocation and left. I stayed because I had ethical questions around participatory practice. I wanted to know how do we, how do we not put things down? How do we assign value? So I stayed for the year and places like the Ronda Valley and all over the place. And 
I managed to clearly for myself define that it wasn't a place where art met society. It's a place where society meets art. And I clearly established that for myself, and that was so important. That's a really long answer. See, I told you I'd make up my time. But, um, but in terms of the invitation, that was vital, because a lot of the other things left me um, without a compass, you know. I had no, nothing to delve into in terms of objects. Tom. Why did you choose us? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, as we pour through the ashes, I, I'll, I guess it was... So, yes, I did see the ArtQuest uh, advertisement, and in the interest, as you said, of full disclosure, I wasn't previously aware of the founding museum. This I'd never fine. been. Um, it was... I think I, I wasn't previously resident in London until maybe about three or four years beforehand, and I'd been very sort of head down trying to do stuff, study and so on. Um, and, you know, bright lights, big city, go and have a look at all the big museums. I was always very interested in museums, um, and my practice up till that point had been... It had gone quite dry and a little museological in its presentation through my study. Um, so I was borrowing artefacts mostly, but also natural objects as well, from collections and trying to display them in new contexts with a history and a story and an accessibility and a community evident um, alongside what it was made of and why. And it, <laughs> I didn't, I just kind of making a rod for my own back, became an expert at doing that, like trying to borrow things from a museum to exhibit in my friend's flat which <laughs> the paperwork is just... <laughs> but, you know, Senate House went for it, so that was good. Um, I managed to borrow things from uh, artists, collections, private collectors, um, archives, uh, and so on, to exhibit and, in these contexts. And I realised that it was incredibly complicated. It's way more complicated than I thought it was, and obviously all for mo like very good reasons. Conservation, mostly. It's, it's, is this going to come back in one piece? Um, a lot of it is about trying to do, was about trying to do stuff through the back door. So, like, knowing somebody who works, they're just trying... You have to do all the same stuff, but it speeds it up. Um, but then this opportunity comes along to work directly with a collection, which I wasn't familiar with. And the first thing I see, and as everybody does when they come here, is that they tragically fall in love with the tokens, um, which was something that I was very mindful of being respectful about and not trying to directly allude to in any um, sense. But that was definitely an attraction, because I was like, this is amazing. This, um, at the time, it's now a lot bigger, but the idea of mudlarking was starting to be a thing. And, um, the idea of small objects from the 18th and 17th century London sort of washing up again and being rediscovered and all these past histories and uh, colonial histories and, um, you know, people who weren't allowed to be. The idea of illegitimacy was a big thing. So that's what attracted me, was just this idea of, like, it's the idea of a very... If a museum is sort of a grand way of presenting something and giving it respect uh, in a particular way and conserving it, it's about conserving evidence of the slightly seamy underbelly of something. So I was very... I didn't want to go in and kind of like prick a bubble because something seems pompous. This was the opposite. It was kind of like... This is trying to show the work that lots of people have done through hundreds of years in trying to... Um, rescue or um, prolong a life expectancy and a life, um, a life for people that otherwise would have been disregarded. So that was, that was what attracted me, I think. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, I've worked with um, a lot of collections in my previous practice, so it was a kind of continuum, really, and a chance to really consolidate some of that work. Um, I'd done things with the Museum of Ophthalmology, the Harry Price Archive of Magical Literature, and also at UCL, working across their collections to produce a kind of solo uh, show. Um, so it felt like this was a real chance to kind of push my practice in a, in a different direction, to really engage um, with this duration with, with the museum. But I think... Um, what drew me to the Harlem really is that it's quite eclectic. It's got a sense of humour. It's relatively kind of small scale. It has a sort of element of autonomy and voice and, and, uh, and kind of independence in a way. Um, you know, they have objects like an eco-warrior helmet in the display. You know, just things like this <laughs> that kind of stand out. Um, it's funded by the Arts Council. You know, it has Arts Council funding. And they, they have worked with artists a lot. And I, I see evidence of that. And I think, oh, like, these guys do this really well. Um, so I really wanted to be a part of that kind of history of them working with artists. Um, and it feels like a home when you walk in. It's welcoming. Uh, it doesn't feel like an airport, <laughs> which a lot of museums kind of do sometimes. Um, so that's really nice. And also, um, I guess the project was very much, I wanted to engage with extinct and endangered birds. And I had been to the museum and I knew that they had these, these items in the collection. So... That, that specifically um, that drew me, and the opportunity to also work with Artspress, so to have um, this kind of relationship with Artspress and the museum felt really fruitful, mm. and has been really wonderful actually, and just Artquest providing also space, just through the um, interviews to kind of reflect, like a reflexive space, which is I think really important during re these residencies, to have mm. kind of critical reflection and conversation, um, so that, that's been really great, so um, yeah. yeah, I think... And I was going to say, in a sense, for the museum ears in the room, for good and for bad, you know, if, if, if a museum is offering a residency, are there sort of words or phrases that either you're kind of looking for and respond to or, or the other way around? You kind of go, if, if that, you know, nope, that sends up a red flag. I mean, I think isn't it is interesting that as an institution how you make sure that your invitation is signalling the things that, you know, ask, that you hope artists are going to respond to. So I just thought, as sitting as an institution with three artists, are there things in that invitation or that kind of initial scoping that, as I said, are either red flags for, uh, or actually are things that you respond to very well and you feel, well, if that's, if that's surfaced early on, then I've, it gives me confidence I might want to work with this organisation. I think that... Um and I'm exactly the polar opposite to Nick. I'm always awful. Like, just ridiculous, right? It's exhausting. But to respond to that, then I'm going to talk about the positive things. In terms of, um, I, I think quite a lot of the time, uh, my work begins with conversations. And I think the trust is, is really, really important because this is... This is personal. It's you're you're arriving, and it's for for me. It's it's the way that I make new work, and so it's really it, I, I'm so invested as an artist because I want to grow, and so that that's a weight that I carry that I know in the process that um, that generosity is is really important in terms of. Um, not having a cup of tea when you arrive, but, you know, I trust you, have a look. What, look at what we've got, you know, and it's, um, I suppose, it's trusting the artist's practice as well, because 
the artist is a, is a guest. They, they view everything differently. Mm. And it, it could be... There's a lovely Danish story of how that's a problem, but there's a great. But there are so many positive stories of how artists arrive in institutes and they bring things that wouldn't be there mm. otherwise. So, so I suppose that in terms of in, invitation, um, for me personally, it's the openness because I'm looking to grow. Mm. I, I don't want to go and do what I know how to do. I want to go and do. It. And we, talk, I think we talked about that a lot in the first panel mm. of. The, the invitation being the opportunity to pivot. Who had that beautiful word? I think it was, yeah, team with pivot. I love that. I'm taking that with me today. There's that opportunity to pivot. Mm. Mm. Um, I think uh, I was just thinking about something that Tim mentioned before with one of the residents at Horniman who there was a discussion about what wasn't going to happen, which then after the event became something that did come <laughs> around. And I think that that's a real uh, draw for me is the idea of... If it, it's not something that I desperately want to do, but if it says that I can't do it, then that's a bit of a red flag. <laughs> um, whereas clear parameters are absolutely in managing expectations. I mean, we, we did some of that. It was, you know, I, I was trying to do things that, with uh, access to images, I think, at one point, and you were very clear about saying, this is the way that you have to access these images, you can't have them, and so on. And, it's, and it is this way of growing. You kind of go, oh, this is, this is real. This is dealing with people and with history and with ownership and, you know, how we disseminate and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I think that it's a way of seeming open to anything and then not <laughs> shutting the doors, but, but just kind of showing you which ones are open. And then as the relationship grows, the trust as you, that you mentioned develops. And then you kind of go, oh, this isn't some... I mean, there is genuinely, because of you know, a certain small child inside of me that goes into an institution and wants to chuck all the dry leaves in the air and then you know, play around in it. It's, it's not the artist me. It's just the sort of, oh, my God, I can do anything. And then uh, you realise that nobody wants to see you doing that. <laughs> just like... Um, so that's that's not you know fun for anyone to see and it's probably a bit wasteful um, and all the rest of it so to engage with things that people that align with the interests of the institution is always quite interesting and exciting because it means that there are enthusiasms going certain directions the other thing that I would say very briefly is that very simply it's um, it's great to see an advertised opportunity where there's this a specification on the amount of money that one is going to be paid for a certain amount of work and then for the production budget to be a separate budget. That is, I mean, it could be massive, it could be meagre, but the fact that there is that is so rare and, mm. and that was a massive draw because it was like, oh my God, I can actually get paid for this. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll just briefly, I mean, again, sticking with red flags, I'm a bit like you looking for the positives. <laughs> um, but So one of the things that really uh, actually drew me to the Hahnemann as well was I went to... Um, kind of talk, there was an open, maybe it was the late nights uh, yeah. programme, and Emma Nichols, one of the curators, gave this fantastic talk in the Natural History Gallery about kind of sci-fi and symbiotic relationships between animals, which was just insane and amazing, <laughs> and just blew my mind, I was like, well if the curators are like this here, <laughs> then I really want to work with you, you know, yeah. and it was, it was so lively, it was engaging, it was complex. Um, the, the, uh, there's a, clearly a curator there who's doing research, who has their own research practice. So to me, that was like, great, I want to have a conversation with these guys. So that was 
that was a really kind of positive job for me. And also, I mean, I was interested in this idea of scale because obviously, you know, there's a particular emphasis today on, you know, smaller scale museums and, you know, I think kind of the Tate kind of Blavatna that we're here is is kind of the, the kind of polar opposite. But you have worked in all sorts of scales. And again, I thought for the three of you, it might be interesting to to just to get your reflection on what it's like, again, for good and for bad, for working for s- small, smallish scale museums. Because I think, um, mm. you know, sometimes you can, as an institution, feel possibly that you, you know, you, you don't have the resources or you don't have the stuff that potentially mm. is glamorous for an artist to get, get stuck into. Um, and so I'm sure this is your opportunity to say something positive about working with small museums. But I think it would be useful for, to, to do the, both the good and the bad, because, I mean, what you, it's interesting for us to hear as well, where we fail our artists. Uh, I smile, because small museums are amazing, and it makes me feel valuable. It makes me feel like, because uh, this is about the only skill I've got, so it makes me feel like, <laughs> God, I can use this. It's like a superpower here, you know, so, so that's... The, the really positive aspect, and I think of I'm thinking of the Bronte Museum mm. and the rewriting of um, well, I nearly forgot it, Wuthering Heights, all the great books the Brontes wrote, um, and there's a real difficulty there that it's a small team, and I could talk about a founding, but I'm going to talk about another small yeah, no, museum yeah, in in terms of uh, it was lots of volunteers who work in there, their staff is very small, and I'm bringing the first live project they've ever had in the museum. And, you know, it's, it's my knowledge that brought with me, say, hold your nerve, it's going to work, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And we had incredible communication. So, you know, at the start of a year-long project, then I'm there to try and work with the teams, meet everybody, make sure that we've got great languages, and you can do that with a small museum. And so the positive aspect is that everyone's with you on the journey if you believe that journey is worth doing. And for us at the Bronte Museum, there, there, were, there were ups and downs. There were phone calls going, oh, this happened today, Claire. Said, oh, right, well, I wonder what we'll do now then. And so there was lots of forward and back, but the intimacy in, in making that work, you know, made, made one beautiful book, but the intimacy of that... People book tickets from across the world because Wuthering Heights meant so much to them. A man waited for three days to write one sentence. And you're like, wow. Mm. And that's, that's the bigness of the smallness, which is really important to value. That's a great phrase, actually, yeah. Mm. Bigness, <laughs> bigness of smallness. Yeah, it's, it's some, some collections, um, I, a couple that I've worked with and ones that I haven't but hope to, that very small, and the reason that they're well known is not necessarily the name that's on it or the place that it is, or so on. It's in doing uh, archival research online, which is how I start normally. It's trying to find out where this actual object is that I keep hearing about, and where it came from, and where the other ones are that are a bit like it, and so on. And you find out that there's there's no way I'm going to be able to access this because it's in an enormous institution. But this one is owned by somebody. <laughs> In a collection, and it could be something like an item of um, clothing, for example, and it could be just like that's one of the Jumper Museum might have one, but you know the the 18th century clothing exhibition might have one as well, but they're much bigger or something like these are not real exhibitions, but they should be. Um, I'm going to Google it. Now. Yeah, the Jumper Museum. Um, 
founded 2019. <laughs> so yeah, I I think that that's one of the joys of it is is kind of finding out that although there are it's a different taxonomy I guess which is one of the real things that gets me going about working with collections is and I suspect is the reason that artists are invited to do things is because it's not expert eyes looking at something from the viewpoint of what the subject area is but it's completely different it's taking another slice through it and reordering it and that's what's really interesting about small collections is that sometimes it is just somebody who wasn't phenomenally wealthy but somebody who had a bit of cash or maybe just somebody who's died and left this really small collection of stuff that nowhere else has anywhere um so it's this idea of like I don't even know what this is yet but I've just heard about it and it's genuinely very exciting whereas other larger institutions you kind of know what they're known for because it's all online mm. and it's very accessible the foundling I think sits somewhere in between that for me where I as I say I hadn't heard of it but um there was a lot of stuff that isn't part of the public display and the reasons for that is quite interesting the the one object that I'm thinking of is the painting that I ended up asking to be displayed for the end uh event which was a copy of Thomas Coram's portrait by uh, a former resident and for some reason there maybe wasn't any blue or brown there's just loads of green so there's like a green sky and a green person and it's kind of not amazing but it is this kind of folk art version of a grand commission portrait and it's absolutely I found it on the website and I was like what's this <laughs> but yeah stuff like that um you never know until you investigate the small and the local how how large it's going to be as a as a concept to investigate definitely yeah i agree with the smallness and bigness quote um i think that like i've just come back from doing a project in norway where we went to a really small community and i think we did the biggest project we've ever done you know we did this huge installation in a hydro power station which was about to be you know transformed into a museum so we achieved you know achieved so much with um, a very small community of people um and i think that's the same you know similar in, in terms of museums i think there's you know from what i experience it feels like a sense of community and culture is um more present in these smaller museums you know, there's more of that sense of kind of working together i mean i don't know you guys could probably talk more about that than me but um that seems to be what i've experienced but i think also something really really key and important to say is that um i think also working in huge institutions to do anything will take far longer and we'll have far more processes and systems to get through to actually make it happen and i think what was great about the hornman museum is things that i thought would take so long so getting a staff pass getting access to the library um negotiating a space on my own to work quietly with the birds um to get access to five or six different uh, specimens very quickly Uh, on my own you know all these things that i thought were going to be huge stumbling blocks the team like margaret burney in particular you also arranged me to work with these bird whistles which was amazing which had to be cleaned and you know all this like process before you even get to encounter the the object um all these processes um margaret and and joe and emma nichols uh, joe hatton kind of went through seamlessly and really quickly and even those things take time so they took up you know the, the first part of the residency to set in place but without uh working with people who can actually make these things happen very quickly within a museum it would have the residency just wouldn't have been as fruitful for me mm-hmm. at all so i'm really 
grateful for that. And I think that maybe perhaps comes from being in a small organisation. And we, when we were talking just before, I think the other thing that suddenly occurred to me is that when you're working, I've worked in very, very big organisations and, and the foundling, and I think the thing about working in a small organisation is everybody's wearing multiple hats. Mm-hmm. One of the hats was your original specialist. <laughs> the other hats you just have to pitch in. So I think we're also perhaps slightly better at if when artists come in to go... And, you know, and I'd like to have a go at this and that and the other. You know, half of you is having a go all the time at various things that you should, in theory, probably be doing if you're in a big institution. So I think perhaps there's that, there's that less siloed sense about who does what mm. in a smaller institution. So I think perhaps mm-hmm. I think... Um, I have two kind of types of question I want to finish. I want to do kind of reflection and impact on your own practice as a result of the residency. And then also I wanted to do a bit of an advice, advice for museums, advice for artists. So we've got 15 minutes to get through all of this. So going to the reflection and the impact, I think for you, that the the sort of artist's residency at Tate, what do you think has been, looking back on it, the what you took away from it and what the impact has been on your practice Subsequently, or perhaps you don't know. Perhaps it's still work, a sort of a process of working through it. I I think that uh, officially, I'm trying to think. Officially, I finished like less than a year ago, and so I haven't got there yet. Mm. Um, it's made me restless, which is really good. I'm really wary that it's an opportunity for me in my pra- I th- I thought and did very differently in that year um, and I think I'm still reeling from that still mm. trying to understand that and I'm working on projects that are around 18 months away and starting to try and negotiate those with myself and aware of this newness that's inside me as an artist and so really probably as all artists who work who produce work for and in public sites rather than studio-based works mm. is that real uh, point of reinvention or the continuum of the thread that takes you through. So, it's, so yeah, I'm answering that really badly. I don't no, know. No, yeah, no, I'm sorry. no. But I, think that's, but I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because you don't sometimes... You know, I've, I've sort of observed a couple of very rare instances... Um, I mean, for me, the most extreme was seeing the impact on Chris Affili of working with the Royal Ballet. Yeah. And his career just went bang. It just like he was, and that was working in the um, paint, paint store down at Seven Mills and working on that kind of scale and on yeah, scaffold. Yeah, yeah. But and it just, you just saw his art just go. <laughs> so sometimes it's an immediate thing. And then yeah. other things, I think it's interesting. You go a year on, trying to work still working through this, which is. I don't know whether you... Um, I'm going to be that person. Could you repeat the question? So it's really... In a sense, oh, God. But in a sense, your reflection on what do you think the impact of working here oh. was, and like I said, it's fine if there wasn't any at all, but you know, your reflection on that, how, how or, or, or in a sense, what came after, or do you feel that it, it did have an impact? It has shaped subsequent mm. projects of yours? Sure. Or... I think that... Um, I guess in a way, just to get it out of the way, there is something that I still seek and was seeking, which is this idea of a platform Mm. uh, as well. And I think it increases an artist's public profile and I think it would be (coughs) daft not to say that that's what I was seeking and and still do. I think it it helps to elevate um, 
I think the word I used just when we were chatting before was legitimacy, but like this idea, because there's people who wouldn't, for me, my art doesn't become any more legitimized, but it's in the eyes of other people that it might just get to other audiences that wouldn't otherwise engage with it. So that, that is definitely something. Um, I, I mentioned briefly before about this, I've just made a little list because I was actually thinking about this. It genuinely helped me to slow down in the idea of doing something that's predicated upon research is, is the, the, and, I, and as I say, it took me a while to get into it, but to respect that, I joked before about having this sacrificial end project, but it's, it's like I, to respect the research without which my art would not exist. I take it very, very seriously, and I don't think I realised how seriously I took it until having to engage with an organisation at every stage to make it happen. And also, because I was working four days a week elsewhere, that one day a week meant that I had that kind of breathing space to then build up to the one day that I then spent doing the thing. So, um, and finally, I think that um, it's my practice used to rely very heavily on the sort of, um, I guess, the Walter Benjamin idea of this, this idea of the artifact that has this, the aura and so on. Um, and it's since moved away into trying to create something that doesn't otherwise exist or, or couldn't otherwise exist because of my involvement and because of the original impetus behind uh, the thing that has my concentration at the time, be it a person or a place or a, a context or a history. Um, so the idea of trying to make, uh, introducing hybridity to things and trying to make what doesn't already exist is now much more interesting to me than something which is held in perpetuity and conservation as what it already was or what it has meant before. So that's made, yeah, made a real difference here, certainly. Yeah, and, and briefly, because I'm one of the people... No, 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 yeah, just um, I think the, the big impact for me on the practice has been um, the, the space of the residency opened up a way to really test methods, so to experiment and test methods and to take risks with those methods, um, which to me is really kind of obviously key to my practice because that's, that's what I'm doing. Um, and to also refine those methods. Um, so for me, it was about the kind of writing encounters, writing with these birds and what the writing was doing in the space of the encounter. And I think really fundamentally how it shifted the practice is that um, it's gone from being just about thinking about the encounter with an extinct and endangered bird as a taxidermy mount into a much more kind of critical encounter. So um, thinking about these um, museum specimens or birds as um, kind of uh, witnesses and testimonies and what kind of stories that opens up, particularly about how they're entangled in kind of um, colonial eras, colonial histories and things. And I think that's really interesting and, and kind, of, um, kind of really quite difficult content as well to engage with. You're engaging with like extinction and then, oh, then there's this thing as well, you know. So it's like almost it needs a PhD really and a lot more time to kind of unpack and unpick. But for me, it, it's really kind of shifted the work in a whole new direction and made the research much more... Uh, rigorous, I think. Um, led to new projects, new collaborations, um, potential to kind of come back into the museum and share that work, which is, is really great. Um, and, um, yeah, just time to get into kind of knotty, difficult subject matter and really kind of wrestle with it um, and to continue doing that kind of beyond the residency. Mm. Really good. 
Well, finally, and you think, <clears throat> because this is, this is a session about working together, about the museum and the artists working together, and I, you know, it's a sort of a slightly strange thing, but I, and not advice in terms of a kind of, you know, tablets of stone, but from your experiences, not just the residencies, do you have, you know, points of note or advice, either for the museum looking to work with an artist in a residency format, or vice versa for the artist who's considering the residency format that you feel are learnings that you feel are kind of useful to pass on? Gosh. Who said all advice is bad advice? Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, they could be just personal to you, that they're now kind of, in yeah. a sense, things that you, you feel that you need to remind yourself to remember or to... Yeah. Or maybe not. I, I, I suppose that in, in the working relationships with museums and collections from an artist's perspective... Um, I think fundamentally one of the things that I've experienced is that all those big institutes break down to people who passionately care about their collections and their museums. And that's really important to understand. You know, I said before, it's all really personal and there's a lot to do. But actually, it's, it's, it's the, the institutes. As an artist going to an institute, you're, you're talking to people who passionately care about what they're looking after and why they're looking after it. And so those stories and histories are really important to them as well. So your, your specialness as an artist is met halfway by the specialness of your curator or your institute. I think that's really important that you're, you know you're amongst friends even though the, the institute's big. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, the main question, that, the word that was going around in my head at the moment was, uh, was why, um, just throughout that thing, why um, I often, I work in education, I often get asked uh, recommendations by students for things to do, a place to see, this kind of stuff. Um, and I, I always try and turn it around and say, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to go and study in this place? Why do you want to go? Because I'm not going to recommend that you do it unless so-and-so. And it would be simply to ask artists to ask themselves, why, why is it you want to do this and what do you want to get out of it? Because it might not be what you think it is. Uh, and you might waste a lot of time and energy trying to do something that actually isn't that important to you. Mm. Um, and similarly for institutions, why actually do you want an artist to engage with your collection, with your employees, with the, your public and so on? What is it that you want to get out of this? And then in the middle, there's a bit more truth that happens and a bit more... Um, it can be more generative in, in many ways, I suppose, in terms of producing something, anything, but, um, but in ongoing conversations and relationships. And I, I, I don't know whether there's a direct connection to this, but I do think it makes it more interesting if, if both... Th there can be a... Um, certainly not here, but there can be a, uh, a thing where people will do a residency um, at an institution where it kind of feels like disingenuous. The advert reads as... It might be one of those red flags... It, the advert reads as if it's slightly tokenistic because it's something that people do because maybe this place has some money to do that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and they're actually not interested at all in having those conversations, which is why the small mm. institutions is a, is a beautiful thing because there tends to be less of that because there's less money, there's less time, there's less space and it needs to be something that you actually want. And artists, yeah, can go in there thinking this is going to be career-changing or it's going to be access to all areas and it's and it's not there's a bit of mutual respect that needs to take place for both roles 
Um, I think just, um, I was very lucky at the Hahnemann, and I've already mentioned this idea that, you know, the smoothness and the, the way that they handled the kind of internal institutional processes very quickly and very smoothly, um, I felt in very safe hands, uh, and when people went out of their way to give me access to spaces and, and the collections and so forth, so... I think I probably encountered best practice there too. <laughs> so that was great. Um, and I think, um, I mean, just I guess in a reflective way, I think, um, and this isn't necessarily, oh, this should have happened, but just I, I wish I'd initiated actually more space for exchange and feedback with staff actually, uh, because I'm, I was so aware as I was talking to um, different curators, the body of research and knowledge that they held, not only about the collections, but their own research practices. I think it would have been really great to have a conversation or exchange or a chance to kind of engage about a little bit more um, because I was so focused on making and writing and thinking about the practice that those things, I think, they would have, it would have been really great to kind of do that as well. Um, and maybe even chances to kind of collaborate as well with curators um, would have been really nice and, and their research or their practices. Um, yeah, and just maybe more time to kind of communicate, again, back to the museum, what, what it is that's going on, mm. what I'm doing. Although there, there were many opportunities with it, but, yeah, I guess you always want more, don't you? <laughs> well, it's funny, because actually that Tom was right. Tom spent, seemed to spend an enormous amount of his residency sitting in the staff. <laughs> <laughs> there were loads of biscuits. Well, yeah. <laughs> Biscuits in there, and, the thing, and it's it's an absolutely tiny space that is always for the people. But actually, the thing I thought was fantastic about that was actually everybody got to know you because it was almost yeah. that weird thing where it was like, you know, <laughs> all right, right, and, you just, and you'd be sitting and having lunch and coming in and going out. And I remember at the end, it might have been me or somebody else writing in your career, you'd go, "We'll we'll miss you at the start." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That thing of, and that was really lovely, I think, having that opportunity for you just to get absorbed into the day to day. I think it's kind of accidental, so if I can follow up a little bit. It, it, just the way that I work, and I know that other people are similar, um, it involves a lot of online stuff mm-hmm. and a lot of um, sifting through things that you can only do on a laptop or whatever. And it was simply this idea of there being a place where I could do that mm-hmm. to then know what I wanted to investigate. Otherwise, I would have just been sifting like a record shop forever and not really pinning anything down. But accidentally, it did involve all of these meetings and confluences and so on, which was wonderful. And I think just as a final chip in, just sitting here as the institution, and it might have come up before, I think that that interesting thing of working in a smaller museum is when you're thinking, because I am often asked when I'm out talking about, and how do you choose the artists that you work with? And... um, you know, so I say it's a research, and you see their work, and you know, and a little. But the reality is, that there's always that final phone call that you make to a couple of strategic people before you put the ask out. Just about it, because I think I always say the thing about a small museum is you just don't have the staff to designate somebody to be the fluffer. <laughs> it's like they've just got to be nice. They've just got to be. That doesn't mean to say that they can't be challenging or something. They've just got to be somebody that just a nice to work with where you can kind of just go because actually 
Yeah. I have worked at institutions, and I won't name them, and I won't name the poor people, the person particularly who was always called the artist whisperer, who was basically <laughs> designated <laughs> to just be the person that dealt with the nightmare artist. Really? <laughs> just, so yes, that, that resource isn't available in a small yeah. institution. So. Yes, as the fantastic Stephen Mangan says, uh, his, his motto for life, he uses the word rehearsal room, but I think room will do. He always says, in every room there's one arsehole, make sure it's not you. <laughs> Which is my rule for life, right? <laughs> Look, we've run over by about three minutes, but that was really fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I should say before you, uh, which I hope you will go and explore, but just in a link to the Tom's comment about the tokens, we're showing wonderful work by the artist Nicola Beeling at the moment. And just as an aside, it's fascinating. About two years ago, I met with Nicola because she'd started researching about the foundling and she was really interested and stuff. And exactly what you said, Tom, she said the tokens were kind of her way in and she was beginning to work in the archives. And so we sat in this room when it was our cafe and I remember thinking, you are really nice and you're really smart and I really like the way your brain is thinking, but I, there are some red flags going, so I thought, I'm going to just say it. And I said, if you're hoping that you might show here, I just have to say, if you do anything about the tokens that involves something that's kind of sentimental or has booties or a bit of a found object, <coughs> or something like that, it's never going to happen. <laughs> I said, you just have to come at this lottery. Anyway, she vanished for two years and then came back and said, I've gone down this route, I've started looking at 18th century broadside ballads, and what she's come up with is just fantastic, I think, because it's vulgar and bawdy and vulgar, <laughs> and it is the absolute opposite of a token, although, of course, when you know our collection, it's just, it kind of is singing through, so I think that thing as well about, uh, she was brilliant at just taking it on the chin when I was like, no, <laughs> 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 right, thank you all so much, and have a fantastic rest of the day.